0: Good morning, welcome to Redemption Parker online. So glad you could join us. It's my privilege to open up God's word with you this morning. We're in the gospel of Matthew this morning. We're in the series called The King and the Kingdom. Matthew chapter nine, if you have it, I'll go ahead and read our passage and pray for our time and jump in from there. Ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come now once again, needing to be fed by you. As you said earlier in this gospel, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would feed us, that you would reshape us, that you would reorient and recalibrate our hearts to the gospel of grace. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. I've, um, I've noticed that the longer I grow as a Christian, I, I, I certainly know, the longer I, I, I've been a Christian, the certain, I, I certainly end up knowing more. But that knowing doesn't always translate to loving more, and that's a tragedy. That there can be a, a growth of head knowledge, a growth of Bible knowledge that somehow doesn't translate into a, a growth, growth of Christ-likeness. I think because in that, there is this inner Pharisee that, that, that always wants to creep up, always wants to grow in my heart and my mind. And this inner Pharisee downplays the mercy and the grace of God in my life and through my life and to others in my life and in the world and begins to make it something that it's not. And that's a Tragedy and so uh part of what it means to be a follower of Christ uh, on this side of eternity is as, as the holy spirit is working out sanctification in our lives it is a constant putting to death of the inner pharisee putting to death the tendency in us to to draw lines that says these people are in and these people are out these people are way too far gone god could never reach them and subsequently therefore i'm not responsible i don't need to go to them kind of heart attitude when we when we lose the the scandal of God's grace, then we begin to lose the wonder of who God is and the awe. And this passage today is meant to remind us of God's scandalous grace to you and to me and to the whole world. When I read passages like this, where the Pharisees just categorize people as sinners, I think of, uh, I think of my friend Drew. Drew. Not because he's some great sinner, though, before a holy God, we all are. Drew is a is a pastor. He's a pastor in Phoenix. And long story short, Drew is a mentor of mine. He's the first person that gave me tangible ministry opportunity. He invited me in 1997 out to live with him and his family as they were missionaries reaching Marines on Camp Hansen in Okinawa, Japan. And so over the summer, I just got to live with them and and see how they did life together, how they loved one another, how they forgave one another at times, and how they just loved Marines and opened up the Word of God with Marines. And and, and Drew would give me opportunities to teach Bible studies on Wednesday. And I I think of those first opportunities to teach the Word of God. Man, I was terrible. But by God's grace and Drew's patience and encouragement, man, he just kept encouraging me, helping me, and letting me grow in that time. And it's the reason why I'm a pastor today. Well, long story, again, long story short, as I went back home and went to seminary, got married, had a six-month-old, we eventually moved out to Japan in 2003 and took over for Drew and his family as they went back and he became a pastor in Phoenix. But as he went back, He had a new hobby. He bought a Harley and so he would ride this Harley around and and one day he in God's providence he pulls into a coffee shop and as he's sitting in there he hears all these other very loud bikes pull up outside the shop and and all these guys with rough edges and, and beards and tattoos with with skulls and, and snakes and demons on their arms and and like all sorts of uh, signs on their chests and and their their leather uh, vests and uh, like they, they just look like rough guys. And, but but Drew is into the motorcycles at this point, and so he goes out and he's not easily intimidated. He's six foot nine and he's a big guy, and so he's looking at the motorcycles. and And as they always do, they have one guy watching the bikes, and he begins to talk with this guy. And he sees on the chest the uh, Sober Riders for Life for Life Sober Riders, and he says, "What's that about?" The guy explains to him, "We're, we're a motorcycle club." Think. Thank motorcycle gang. (laughs) Um, He said, we're a motorcycle club and uh, we're sober riders, meaning all of us have a history of drug and alcohol abuse, but, but we, uh, to be in our club, you gotta be sober. And so Drew's eyes widen at that moment. He says, Hey, I'm a friend of Bill W. And what that means in the world of AA means, like, I'm a recovering alcoholic myself. And so uh, they begin to hit it off. And he gets introduced to the other bikers in the club. And, and not to their real names, but to their patch names. And they all have their own patched-in name. And eventually they invite him. They said, hey, man, do you want to roll with us? You, you, you can't roll uh, in the midst of us because you're not one of us. But you can, you can follow us if you'd like. And he'd be like, that, he said, that'd be great. And over the next few months, he was invited several times to roll with them. And eventually, he would go to other coffee shops and, and stuff like that. But, but they were also just like a lot of other biker clubs, they, they would pull off into strip clubs, and, and Drew would have to keep rolling on by. One day, they found out what he does he's a pastor. This caused a, a level of anxiety and even animosity toward Drew in this moment because one thing that these biker clubs, well, the two groups of people that these biker clubs do not like are cops and Christians, and both for the same reason. They don't like to be judged by either one of them. So cops and Christians, man, they're, 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 they're on the outs. They're, 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 uh, they're on the other side of the tracks, if you will. But nevertheless, there's one guy, um, his patch name, because he was a Wiccan priest, his patch name, no joke, is Sinner. That's why I think about Sinner when I read these passages. So Sinner uh, finds out that Drew's a pastor, and, and he doesn't want anything to do with it, man. He, he did, but, but over time, they just continue to spend time together, continue to spend time together. And after about a year... The club invites Drew to consider becoming a member, and he does. And, and, and to become a member, he uh, has to get voted in by the guys. And so they take a vote, and they, they welcome him in, and they say, we want to let you know you are the first ever sober rider to get 100% unanimous vote. That means that sinner said yes to you. And sinner had never said yes to anyone else before. And so this relationship with sinner, now now Drew gets his patch, and his is prodigal. So you got prodigal, and you got sinner, and they, they just continue their relationship. Fast forward a few years, Drew has had some tremendous ministry at this point with lots of different people, and one day he's in his respectable, nice, upper middle class, kind of mega church, uh, predominantly white uh, church in Phoenix, uh, in his office. And uh, his secretary rings in and says, hey, um, Pastor Drew, uh, there's someone here to see you. And he says he could hear in her voice kind of a trembling. He's like, um, who is it? He says, well, he says, he says his name is Sinner. And Drew's like, oh, sinner, yes, I'll be right out. And so Drew gets up and, and goes out to, to meet sinner in the lobby. And, and, and they, they shake hands, they hug, and, and embrace one another. And, um, and, and and Drew said he could feel the atmosphere, the tenseness in the air of the other staff members and of the other church members. And they're like, what is going on? Why is someone called sinner in our church right now? And so Drew takes sinner back to his office. It gives him a monster because they don't drink alcohol, but they'll drink energy drinks all day long. And, and, and he says, what, what, why, why'd you come by? And the sinner says, I came by because I have an idea for, for a sermon that you got to do. And Drew's like, really? What, what's the idea? He says, well, I, you should preach a sermon telling those people out there in the church what people like me think of them. And Drew's like, that's a great idea. Will you help me with that? And Sinner's like, well, do you mean like tell you what I think of them? And He's so, like, no, no. I mean like, will you come up on stage with me on Sunday and tell them yourself? I, I love that because we can get so, we can downplay the scandalous nature of God's grace so much so that we begin to create churches and behavior and people that look like us, vote like us, think like us, check all the right boxes, and we can begin to think God's grace is just enough to save people like you and me. But what happens when a sinner comes into your church? What happens when, when Jesus goes to sinners? Does it make you uncomfortable? It, it made the Pharisees uncomfortable. I'm guessing it even made the disciples in this moment uncomfortable. You should be uncomfortable by the scan, by when, you get in, when, you, when you encounter the scandalous nature of God's grace. That's what this passage is, is meant to show us. See, this is the calling of Matthew. Matthew, who, by the way, is also the author of this book, has been transformed by the scandalous nature of God's grace. Look what it says in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax, tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now you need to understand how scandalous this is. Matthew is a traitor. He's a sellout. He he had Uh, with his wealth, he had purchased the right from the Roman government to uh, assess taxes on his fellow citizens and and those that would be coming through the road and and, and trading goods. He would tax them, give some to Rome and keep the rest for himself. And he was hated. Oh, he was wealthy, but he was hated, despised. Makes me think of that scene in uh, Band of Brothers, the miniseries about World War II, where they they liberate one of the French towns and there's a celebration going on, but then it, it cuts to the scene where there's these women they're being mistreated and their heads are being shaved, and you find out it's because during the German occupation they were prostitutes giving themselves to the Germans. And they were seen as traitors, they were hated. This is worse. This is selling the Jewish selling out your Jewish brothers to the pig eating Romans. And something in Matthew, Matthew doesn't tell us. I think he doesn't tell us because he's humble. Uh, what, what, uh, what is all going on in his heart and mind. But something, he's come to the end of himself. He's hit rock bottom. And in Jesus, he sees, man, you are what, what, what life is all about. You are worthy. You are the treasure. All that I've been living for is nothing compared to you, Jesus. In fact, Matthew will make that a consistent theme throughout the rest of his gospel. Just showing that Jesus, his scandalous grace and mercy is the treasure that we all need. And so he gets up and he leaves everything. He can't go back. He's not a fisherman. He can't go fish again. He is all in on Jesus. And so what, 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 what do we see happen? He throws a party. He's, he's tasted the mercy and grace of God. He's become a, a new creation, if you will. And he throws a party. Luke's gospel says this that much. He, he throws a great feast for Jesus, his disciples, and some other people. Let's see who they are. Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew gathers all of his friends, right? And who are his friends? They're sinners. They're other tax collectors. He doesn't have any respectable friends. But he has so been transformed by the mercy and grace of God. He wants them to know. He wants them to taste and see. He wants them to be with Jesus. And Jesus is still doing that scandalous work of rescuing and redeeming sinners. You know, this week I heard the story from one of our workers in an Arab Muslim Background Context That They help get the digital media out and get Bibles into hands of people in in otherwise closed countries. I heard the story of this man this week who received a Bible from one of our workers and began to read it and began to wake up to the mercy and the grace of God. And, And he was so transformed that on day one, on the first day of being a follower of Jesus, he led 17 of his friends and family to become followers of Jesus. On the next day, he led 18 more. Now there are hundreds of of Muslim background people rejoicing in the Savior right now from this week because Jesus is still in the business of extending his scandalous grace to the nations. And that grace is extended to you and to me, and we need it. We need to be the kind of people that renew our minds and our hearts to the scandalous nature of God's grace and put to death the inner Pharisee in our hearts. So the problem with the Pharisee wasn't their zeal. It wasn't their, their knowledge of the word of God. And the problem with the Pharisee is that they had a small view of God's mercy and grace. They believed they could determine by behavior alone who was in and who was out. And if you were in, you were worthy of their attention, uh, their, their their teaching, their their care. And if you were out, you were dead to them. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's come with scandalous grace to radically reorient us to God and to the kingdom of God. That's what this passage is about. But notice it says his disciples are with him. I imagine the disciples are even a little bit uncomfortable in this moment. Man, we're surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. That might be prostitutes or, or, or people that have just given up trying to follow any, anything about the things of God. And, and yet there's this party going on. Because the best evangelists are often those that have most recently tasted the mercy and the grace of God that they've come and and experienced new life. This is why we must constantly renew our minds and our hearts uh, to the mercy of grace of God, to be used of God in this world. It's in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's actually a good question. See, because there were Old Testament laws that had some pretty strict guidelines because... But especially in that time, but even now, who you eat with, that's an intimate thing. That's why we prioritize spinning slow meals together. Who you eat with, you become like. And so there were laws against uh, eating with the unclean, the the sinners, the the, the outside, uh, so that the people of God would not just kind of take on all their things. And so the Pharisees saw sin and sinners like they saw lepers as unclean, someone that you didn't get close to because if you got close to, you could catch it. So if you got close to sinners, you might catch the disease of sin. And so you had some separation. But, but the Pharisees are like, why? Why is there this huge party full of tax collectors and sinners? And he asked the disciples, and they're probably like, we don't, we don't know. Uh, but then Jesus hears about this. Look what Jesus says. He says, uh, but when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus extends grace and mercy even to the Pharisees. I, I love Jesus because he's, he's not a Pharisee to the Pharisees. It, listen to the grace that he extends. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, Go and learn what this means. And he quotes, from a passage that Isaiah and Hosea say. And he's saying to these Pharisees, these guys that know their Bible, he says, I want you to go and learn what this means. Spend some time soaking in the message of Hosea. Hosea is is a message of God's scandalous grace. I, I imagine that the Pharisees probably didn't like spending too much time there because it was a picture of scandalous grace. Just recounting the story quickly, Homer, uh, Hosea is called to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And God says, I want you to love her because this is how I love my people. And even though they're unfaithful to me, I love them. And he says, he's, she's going to be unfaithful to you, but love her nonetheless. And sure enough, they have some kids, but she's also unfaithful. Long story short, she, she leaves. She's totally abandoned uh, Hosea. And, and she finds herself uh, being on the auction slave block, probably naked before many of the men that have used and abused her. And she's being sold as a slave. And God sends Hosea to go and purchase her back and to love her once again. This is mercy. This is a religious action that, that God says he wants from us. This is mercy because God is a God of mercy. And he tells the Pharisees, go learn what this means. And then he says, because I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because if you understand what Hosea is saying, you understand what Isaiah said, that there is none righteous, no, not one, then maybe just maybe they'll see their need. See, many people do not hear the call of Jesus because they really don't think they need Jesus. They really don't think they're that bad. They don't understand the holiness of Jesus and the sinfulness of their rebellion before a holy God. But Jesus is merciful and he extends it. Now, how is this possible? Why? How, how, can, how can Jesus say and do all this? I think the next passage is what's important to that. Says then the disciples of John came to him saying, "Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not?" So John the Baptist has some disciples and and they're wondering, "Hey, the the Pharisees are fasting, we're fasting, but your disciples aren't fasting." And so Jesus begins to answer them. Said to them, "Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast." So in the old covenant, in the old system fasting was a time for mourning and lamenting. It it was commanded one day of of the year, the day of atonement, and and that was to acknowledge our sin, to mourn and lament and and to fast. And there were other times where they would kind of add to that and fast on their own, but that that was the purpose of it. And Jesus said, look, Something radically new has come and the king is here. It would be inappropriate for them to be mourning right now because this is a time of celebration. And he kind of hints at points to a day is coming where I'm going to be led, uh, led uh, away. I'm going to be slaughtered. That, that'll be a time of mourning. That'll be a time of fasting. But that's not now. I've come to bring something radically new. I haven't come to just kind of tweak the old system and help you out along the way. I've come to change everything. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in the next two illustrations. He says, "No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and and a worse tear is made." So he's just saying you don't put a new new patch on an old garment. But the next illustration is even more illuminating, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so both are preserved. What is Jesus saying? Wine was deeply, deeply symbolic throughout the Bible in two ways. Wine was either a picture of God's wrath being poured out, or it was a picture of God's mercy and grace. Blessing flowing to his people and to the nations. And, and so Jesus says, Look, I have come to bring new wine. When we lived in the Czech Republic, we lived in wine country. And every year in September, uh, little roadside stands would begin to be set up along these vineyards, and they said birchak on, on them. And that was the Czech word for new wine. There is this time in the fermentation process where where the grape juice begins to ferment and transitions into wine. And in this like two week period, it is birchak. It is new wine. It is sweet wine. It tastes like juice, but has the alcohol alcohol content of wine. So you got to be careful drinking it. But the other thing is uh, when you bring it home, Every day or so, you had to unscrew the cap and let the pressure out because the process of the new one was chemically expanding and and this pressure would build up and so jesus is saying look i 've come to bring something radically new i haven 't come to just fill the old the old system this this is totally new this is a whole new way of relating to god it 's the way of radical grace and mercy he says so you you don 't just try to Patch up the old, this is new. this is God's grace and mercy. So what is this so what? So what does this mean for us as a church and as individuals? I, I think it just means for those of us that have in, in the past tasted the mercy and grace of God, never forget that. We 've got to make it our aim to constantly renew our hearts and our minds, to remember the scandalous love of God. And so we put to death the inner Pharisee each week and each day. And so together as we gather, it's what our liturgy is designed to do. I hope you don't just check out when we go through the liturgical elements that they're, they're geared to, to shape and form our hearts and to put to death the inner Pharisee in our hearts that makes little of God's grace. And so we are called to worship. And we're called to worship who? The King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the universe, who is holy, holy, holy. And as we worship him and we sing songs of worship and we resound with his praise, we begin to, it begins to dawn on us who God is once again and who we are. And with Isaiah, we say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And so we come to a place of confession of sin. And as Aaron says every week, it's not intended to bring shame and condemnation, but to set us free from those things. Just to acknowledge before a holy God, you're holy and I'm not. I'm desperately in need of scandalous grace even again. And so we sing some more songs and then we receive the assurance of pardon. That is just the reminder that all of our hope is in Jesus and his blood alone, not in our own work or our own righteousness and we preach the gospel. And at the end of every message, we come and we remember Christ's broken body and shed blood in communion. And then we sing a couple more songs. And then we're, we receive the benediction, the good word. And we are, we are reminded that as people set free, rescued, redeemed, loved by God, lavished with his grace and mercy, we are to reflect that kind of love to the world. Those that are loved much, love much, and we have been loved much. Does that make sense? Those who are loved much love much, and we have been loved much. So now we go. We go like Matthew goes. We go and we gather our friends, and we take this scandalous nature, the scandalous grace to our family and to our neighbors, to our friends, but not just to them, to all people. See, you might be thinking, man, I could I could never be a sober (laughs) rider. You're probably right. Neither could I. But the same grace that does a rescuing work among the sober rider community even today, that same grace is available to you and to me. That's the same grace that came and told Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. That's scandalous grace. That same grace came to a a guy named Saul on his way to Damascus and knocks him off his horse and and, and makes him a new creation. Uh, He was on the way to persecute and kill Christians and he becomes Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul, a trophy of God's grace. That same grace that is scandalous rescues and redeems a guy named Augustine who had given himself to sexual debauchery and all sorts of idolatry and and grace came into his heart and man, it captured his heart. That same grace came to a guy in an Augustinian, monk, uh, in Augustinian monastery named Martin Luther, who thought, man, maybe if I just fast enough, maybe if I, if I sleep in the snow, maybe if I uh, don't eat any meat, maybe if I uh, whip myself enough, maybe all that will show God that I uh, am worthy of his love. And then one day, the grace bomb hits his life, and he, everything changes. He's like, it's not about what I do, it's about everything that he's done for me, His grace and his grace alone is what makes me righteous. That same grace, that same amazing grace would take a slave trader named John Newton and open his eyes to his debauchery and his sin and bring him into the kingdom of God and he would repent and he would write amazing grace. That same grace would rescue an 18-year-old Mark Oshman and make him a new creation. That same grace is what rescued you And that same grace, if if you have not yet bowed the knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and turned from your sin, is available to you. It's scandalous grace. And that same grace empowers us and sends us out into this world. So you may not be uh, in sober Riders. But let me ask you this. Do you have an extra bedroom? See, Drew, he's in sober Riders, but as his... Kids, as his four kids grew, grew up and, and left the house, he's like, "What am I doing with this giant house with extra bedrooms?" And he began, They began to just foster kids. They've fostered 20 kids now. They've adopted four of them. He's currently in the process of adopting another, another one, it says they have five. It's family 2.0 for, for Drew, because he's tasted the grace of God, and he wants to give the grace of God to as many as possible. Someone at his church said, Drew, you already did your time. Why don't you just enjoy your retirement? And he just scratches his head and he says, and waste my life like that? No, this is for my joy to to receive this kind of grace and to give this kind of grace. It's for your joy, church. It's for my joy to be people astonished, wowed, amazed by the grace of God every day. So to that end, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, I pray that this week we would first be floored by your grace once again. Show us who we are, show us who you are, and show us the grace that covers us. And then with that, may we be like Matthew, and may we have a celebration with people from all backgrounds and inviting them into the kingdom of God. Lord, may, may Redemption Parker be a, a grace-centered gospel kind of culture, people, that we are s- so, um, so captured by your grace that the rest of the city would say, man, that church is scandalous in the way that they love everybody. I ask this in Jesus name. Amen.